Nexus PMG welcomes you to the Bigger Than Us podcast, which we as energy geeks lovingly refer to as the BTU. Bigger Than Us is a podcast that focuses on ideas that will shape the future of our planet and ultimately our existence. We will occasionally lean into energy topics because after all, it's the key to our collective survival, but we'll also explore other ideas and topics that we believe will have an impact that is bigger than us. And now, on to today's show. Hello and welcome to the Bigger Than Us podcast. I'm your host, Raj Daniels, and today I'd like to welcome Corey Glickman to the show. Corey Glickman is Vice President and Head of the Infosys Sustainability and Design Business, which develops and deploys smart space technologies at private and public organizations. Corey has over 35 years of experience in industry consulting, providing advice on technology and business. He is an expert in strategic design, digital transformation, customer experience strategy, and the use of visualization applied to the development of innovative products, processes, and services. Corey is a member of the World Economic Forum Pioneer Cities Working Group, and he is also a Singularity University faculty expert guest lecturer. Corey, how are you doing today? Hi, Raj. I am doing fine. Glad to be here. Corey, I'm excited to dig into this conversation, and especially with your background, I had a a choice of places to start, and I decided to start here. Tell me about working with or being mentored by Fred Rogers. That's a that's a great question. Um, so the opportunity of um, meeting Fred Rogers, let alone being mentoring by him, is is a unique opportunity. Uh, I think for many individuals, it may not be so uncommon um, in circles in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, where where I live, and that's where he is from and where his his show was created. Um, early on in my career, one of my um, first jobs is with uh, public television, uh, which is WQED here in Pittsburgh. And I remember my first day of work, I came in as a, as a designer. So that would be a production designer, someone who creates um, promotions for shows, um, actually designs show sets, um, gets to do some television production eventually, editing, all these very interesting objects and things to do. And my first day in the in building, I actually get on an elevator. And who's in the elevator? It's Fred Rogers. <laughs> and I was speechless, not because... Um, I'm like odd. I'm just thinking, here's a individual who I've seen since I've probably been five years old, right? That I can remember. <laughs> it's probably one of the few TV shows that my parents would probably leave me alone in a room saying, we're safe to leave him in a room, you know, with this, <laughs> with this TV show because of the messaging that's coming across here. And um, I don't think we said anything the first day um, across there. But eventually, you know, what had happened um, as I started to work on shows and got to know him, um, we became, you know, very close. Uh, he's very much in person is the personality that you had seen, you know, on TV as you know, millions of, of people had seen on TV and his messaging around um, who you are and it's okay to be, et cetera, et cetera. And what was absolutely fascinating, what we don't often, I think, give credit to people like Fred Rogers is he was truly a pioneer, both not just socially, uh, but also technology wise, because when Fred graduated, um, you know, into a professional world. He was actually um, a minister. Um, so he was destined to go work in a church or in community service. And I know he spent his first one or two years doing so. And he actually came up with the idea of, I can do this on television. 
Um, and it wasn't so much about um, preaching or delivering religious messages or community service messages, as opposed to saying, I can have this medium where I can connect with individuals, particularly children, and relay um, messages. And through this use of technology, um, which to that date, if you, if you have any um, people that you know that were watching television in the 50s or 60s, or maybe there are um, shows that you've seen about Fred Rogers, back then television had a lot of slapstick, right? There's a lot of things like clowns that were three stooges and, and other things like that. And he was saying this medium can be so much more. So he made a conscious decision um, that his goals and mission of what he intended to do um, through connecting with people um, would have a much broader uh, amplification through television, which was the technology. It had never been really done before, let alone commercially or technically. And he crafted um, a whole genre and approach which has held up for what 40 50 years um and still holds up people will still watch those reruns across there and he was very very consistent so having him as a mentor that not only talked about consistency and being able to amplify what you do uh but more importantly embracing technology uh understanding you know how to have very difficult conversations um through there this is important. I know one of the things that I talked about earlier, as I said, I specialized in um, special effects. So when you're in the uh, in the 1980s, you know, special effects, the zenith at that point, were things that were happening with George Lucas and Steven Spielberg and Star Wars. I actually had the opportunity to do a project with both of them through public television. And it was an amazing, um, you know, experience to Go ahead and do this. And of course, both of them, who did they want to meet? They wanted to meet Fred Rogers, right? Because <laughs> they too grew up with it and their kids grew up with it. And I remember the four of us were actually in a, um, having a lunch, you know, off to the side, off the soundstage. And um, I was thinking, wow, okay, so I'm working at a public TV station. I'll never have the money or the resources or, or the reach of what, um, you know, Lucas is doing or, or Spielberg. And I remember Fred talking to me and just saying, you can still be, that level of impact, you just have to do that within the, the realm and the circles that you have and coming across there. And that's always been a, you know, a really, really interesting um, you know, lesson for me. And that's often what I talk to people about, that it's not so much the you know, being a big fish in a small pond or a small fish in a big pond. It's about having the impact um, that you can create um, within the areas that you are and that you will find mentors and you yourself should become a mentor to help pass those messages along. It's a great lesson. You mentioned, you know, he made a conscious decision. When did you make a conscious decision to get involved with design or what drew you to design? So um, really interesting question. And I will give you a very honest answer. There were, there were two main influences. So first off, when I was in high school level, I was one of those students that pretty much was straight A's and had the ability to meet a lot of um, opportunities, both scholastically and athletically, and had a lot of choice of, of, of what I could do. And, and one of those opportunities actually um, was in physics. And I had a professor in high school who actually got me um, associated with Princeton University while I was a, a junior in, in high school. And I was able to take classes in physics at Princeton while I was still going to high school. So physics was a big deal for me because my family is very scientific and engineering-wise. And as I was going further and further um, working on quantum physics, of all things, uh, one of my 
mentors there was a guy named Bob Roth. And Bob Roth, again, a Star Wars connection here. He was the gentleman who worked for um, Lucas, who figured out the village of Tantooine. So this whole idea of how do you create a, a this you know, village that doesn't exist, right? That's the city, right? That, that's there. And they actually used physics to figure out how the camera works and how do you do that perception and size. So got to work on parts of that with them, right? As, as, as part of physics problems. And it was super, super, you know, interesting. And just as you can imagine, you know, thinking this is, this is what I want to do. And as we started to talk more about science, we started to talk about the importance of design. And he said, you need to go to design school because design school has you think about projects in a different way across there. And it's very true. Design is extremely hard and complex. Uh, I ended up going to a, um, um, the Art Institute of Pittsburgh um, afterwards, and it was a, uh, how can I say it? It was a very good school. Uh, but it was not like a typical academic institution. Your, your, your grades didn't matter from an academic perspective, but your ability to create and to defend your project and to be judged and the ability to solve organizationally through here. So if you think about things like physics, it's often there's formulas, there's theorems, there's um, lots of math, and then there's experimentation and the whole scientific process. The design process isn't that different, except design is a bit more control of creativity where you say, I have a problem to solve. Um, what are the pieces I can create or gather? And how can I ultimately take enough control of those pieces in order to get the result that I want to get to? And what happens with design, because it is creative, creative in most, system, most systems, it's very judgmental. Right, it's not always scientifically proved, but it's it's always judged. We all know what we like and what we don't like. We all make decisions every day across there. So using a design process um, was very very important to me, and it was very competitive. Suddenly you are competing against all kinds of individuals um, or all kinds of problem sets, and I think this actually has a lot to do with the um, resurgence of design thinking. You know, five six years ago, that businesses are realizing that design is a very important organizational matter. So that's the first reason. The second reason is a much shorter answer. I met a very beautiful girl <laughs> in design school <laughs> and that had a big influence and uh, that's worked out too. I've been married for 40 years to her. So that certainly had a big play. Well, congratulations. Maybe we can do another episode on designing long, long lasting marriages. There you go. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm fascinated by design. You know, offline when we were speaking, I mentioned that I had my own software company that I launched back in 2014. I became, you know, really embedded in the world of UX, UI, user experience, and did some reading around design. And I often wonder, maybe you have an answer to the question, but why isn't design more emphasized in, in high school classes or environments. I try to tell my kids all the time that, you know, look at the environment you're in, whatever environment we're in or whatever you use, whether it be a spatula to cook with or even a building, someone somewhere for some reason has designed this object or this environment for you to be in. Why do you think it's not more emphasized in school? Yeah, I think that's um, truly interesting. Um, and I think it's a great observation. I think that um, design, at least where you would start to maybe get serious about it would be at a high school level, like for, for most, for most uh, students before they would make a decision to go to college. And then when mm -hmm. they go to college, you know, the parents saying, really, you're going to design school, right? <laughs> yeah, get a job. Right. But what's really interesting about it is this. So when you look at schools right now, um, they'll talk about steam, pro right. They'll talk about STEM programs. 
right? Mm -hmm. So science, technology, engineering, and mathematics, that's what we need. And then some curriculums, actually, they now call it STEAM, where they're putting the arts in there. But generally, schools, I think budgetary-wise, they always think of um, art and music um, as electives, right? They're things that you're doing when you're not taking the, the, the hardcore classes that, you, that you're required to take across there. And yet, if you think about, especially now, how much of our life is run by designers? I, was, I just saw the latest Marvel movie, right? Ten Rings. And like every typical movie at the end, you see the literally 3,000 names, right? Mm-hmm. Going across the screen of all the animators and, and the musicians and the directors and the photographers and you know the rotoscope artists. And then the whole product itself was created by Disney, right? And Marvel and Pixel Studios. And when people aren't watching the movie, they're on their phones, right? And they're, they're looking at social websites. And if we think about how much impact designers have on the majority of our lives right now of what of what we're saying is, is taking place right it's you know everything that um most of the generation admires is what is that next great movie or what is that great you know entertainment or the ability to see an amazing concert or the fact that i have a car that behaves in a certain way you know it's autonomous or it has a certain style or what are the clothes that i'm wearing you know the things that we have are there I think it's somewhat ironic that designers have taken over the world, um, but I don't think that's a new thing. If you think about the museums that we all visit, what populates most of our museums, right? If it's not a natural history museum that's full of dinosaurs or perhaps other areas, it's all about the artwork, right? Over the millennials, so there seems to be a thing that society you know, treasures the most, or even engineering, I would say, is design. So I think deep down we know this. Uh, I think that the Part of the issue might be getting good designers to teach at a level beneath college. I think once you get to the college level um, and university level, uh, you could get into really great design programs, right? But I think it's at the high school level that we don't have enough very good designers um, that are teaching. And, and to your point, you know, every part of our life is, depending on your view, either influenced by or manipulated by design. So I agree with you. I, I hope that as we progress and people realize just the influence of designers in our life, it does start coming up early in the education system. Mm-hmm. You know, what's surprising too is, so as you know, I work for a, um, a large consulting firm, um, technology consulting firm, Emphasis. So it's 270,000 you know, individuals. Most of the, if you looked at it from the outside, you say these are technologists, right? These are engineers, these are software designers, these are business consultants, and we run very large, complex programs. And we have close to 5,000 designers, which is a lot of people, but in a 270,000 you know, person environment, that's a very small percentage. But I would clearly and openly say that people are always surprised, whether it's from the outside or from even our own teams, that the people who actually are designers or trained in design are the most organized people out there, right? That they know how to run large, complex situations. They can visualize, you know, what's going to take place. Just like a great athlete can visualize, you know, what a performance would be across there. A lot of times there could be some fuzzy logic through there, but the good designers have science behind what they're doing too. So I, Absolutely. I have high hopes. Now, I'm glad you brought up Infosys. Can you share with the audience an overview of Infosys and your role at the organization? Certainly. So, so Emphasis is um, one of the top 10, um, what we call IT services companies um, on the planet. Really great origins um, started in uh, India um, in 1970s um, with, 
with a handful of money and seven individuals in uh, Bangalore. And at time at the time, Bangalore was um, a village, not much more than a village. Now, Bangalore is one of the largest cities in the world, and it had a lot to do with emphasis and the ability of the economy and the um, creation of what the company was able to do. So, if you think about the first Indian companies, um, what was their role? You know, within the larger IT services consulting world, it was it was you know offshoring, right, and, and outsourcing certain kinds of activities through here. But as these companies um, started to mature, it switched, right? It was no longer just someone who was filling a gap in a delivery cycle for a Western company, but now it was a competitor. And the fact is, is that in India, most, I don't want to generalize, but let's face it, there's a lot of people that say you're either going to become an engineer or a doctor. There's an incredible you know, schooling system and an incredible work ethic and also this huge social mandate it's the fourth largest um, economy on the planet. It's the largest democracy. And there's a lot of work that still has to be done there. And I think when you're put in situations like that, the harder the problem to solve, the better the solution. So Emphasis, along with several other um, Indian technology companies, have evolved to become very serious players of, of bringing innovation um, across there. So without going through the history of 30 or 40 years of what these technologies could you know, have done, I can say is where we are now is that we're a digital transformation company. We're in 53 countries around the planet. Uh, as I said, we have 270,000 um, individuals who are doing work for almost any company that you can imagine. And that work is generally um, consulting and advisory, um, heavy, heavy technology design, both digital and physical. We have close to 20,000 uh, what I call real engineers. So these are mechanical, robotic, chemical, electrical engineers that are doing physical aspects of solutions because it's becoming more physical um, across there. We have strong consulting services that do everything from what financial, you know, obligations to um, supply chain, logistics uh, across here. And the company, uh, we um, have our own DNA uh, paths is actually, I'm proud to say is uh Carbon net carbon neutral now for two years, so we have been um, a leader in the sustainability field, both for our own operations and with our clients through here. And that wasn't something that said, okay, we need to do this now because this is what's important to the planet. We've actually did this starting in 2008 when the company was saying we need to grow. Um, we're in a situation that we think we have the power to change and help society. And this is true. It's not just a line. Um, we believe that as technologists and as the ability to, to work with many different kinds of companies, that we should do things in a certain ethical way. And that has become very much you know, the structure of what Emphasis is about. So it is about doing technology for good. It is about having a, uh, a non-Western view on, on the world and what technology can do for society. You know, it's different if you're from a, a very, you know, wealthy country um, scenario that says I might be doing business, um, you know, because of profit and, and, and other things. It doesn't say emphasis doesn't have to profit. Every company should and does. But there is also a large social mandate to say, how do I create an economy for my country and, you know, for the hundreds of millions of people, right, you know, that are that are, you are directly related to. And I think that's part of uh, emphasis's heritage. And your role at the organization? 
So um, my title is um, Global Lead of Sustainability and Design. I had to make sure I had the design always in my title. Whatever I've done, I've made sure the title is <laughs> attached there. But what this basically means is that I am the head of sustainability for emphasis. And we have to think of sustainability really as two pieces. So there's this internal view that's around our operations. And there's a, there's a group of uh, individuals that have been around since 2008 that have looked after the company to get us to where we are. I've been charged with building out and externalizing our capabilities and our knowledge and continue to grow those paths so that we can service clients. And that ranges from corporations to governments to institutions to academic um, entities on how we can deliver it. So that's that's one of the three roles that I have. The second role that I have is um, I incubated a couple of years ago what we call our smart spaces practice. And that would be city infrastructure, um, buildings themselves, uh, everything from how energy is used in buildings to how the buildings are designed to the experiences that buildings have to city traffic and mobility patterns. So it's another practice that, that I lead. And there's a lot of overlap between sustainability in there. And then I have... Once again, a, a third practice, which I first came to the company for, and it's called Strategic Design Consulting. And that one is a smallish tip of the spear group. Once again, I'm always going to have design you know, somewhere attached to whatever I go and do. And that is a unit that cuts across the entire company. It's a very small unit, but it does what's called tip of the spear work. It allows us to look at opportunities that may not make business sense or perhaps doesn't um, have a clear, you know, path of how this will benefit, but they're important, important things to look at. And they generally are um, looking at to say, is there a viable business model? Is there a truly feasible technology? And what would be the horizon for that? And the third, is it usable across there? And this allows us to try projects or try trends or invent trends or create living labs in ways that we think are interesting places to go. And um, it really then sets up for other parts of emphasis to then see if things can be scaled. So those are the three roles that I have. Corey, it sounds to me like Fred Rogers' advice to you really came to fruition. Not only are you impacting or potentially impacting the 270,000 employees at Infosys, but by extension, I just can't imagine the number of people they're touching. So it sounds like what he said really stuck. Yes, absolutely. And I've had several mentors, but yes, he's the one that, that, that I would name across there. And, and the point that you're making about that extension. So it's interesting on the, the KPIs that, that I have for the are different for all three of these units. So the, 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 the key performance indicator for the strategic design consulting is somewhat of a revenue marker, but it's very small. And it is much more about, are we looking at the right ideas? Are we, you know, not resting, you know, on our laurels, and are are we willing to take risk? Okay, so that's measure. I get measured on KPIs on this one, and then also, are we willing to take diversity as a talent, and 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 have that kind of thinking, and and try to install design beyond just talking about it? The KPIs for the smart spaces is very much a a business KPI of revenue and utilization, and um, true business metrics that you would see with any um, business unit you're going across there. The sustainability uh, unit has revenue KPIs also attached to it, but the number one KPI that I actually um, have is how can we positively impact 80 million lives through what we do? And that's the goal for this year, okay? So that's kind of that extension you're talking about. 270,000 people, all the companies that they work for, 
all of the um, people that we work through, the companies themselves, what they can do, how can we start causing that flywheel to take place? And it has to be an immeasurable path or pattern um, across there. So that's kind of that Fred Rogers, you know, lessons coming back again. Sounds like a great KPI, 80 million lives. Yeah, that's that's for this year. I, I can't wait to see next year's uh, KPI. <laughs> <laughs> so let's move to the smart spaces practice. What does that look like? Um, does it come in form of an engagement with a client? Can you can you kind of frame that for us? Sure. So let's define what a smart space is first. So a smart space could be um, could be a building, it could be something indoors, it could also be something outdoors. Um, it could be a campus. It could be in a sports arena. It could be a transit system. It could be a space station. Right. So how do you take a space and bed data and intelligence um, within that space so that things start to automate right through here. So if I think of a space in, in three areas, uh, in smart spaces, one would be what can I do with assets, um, you know, whether it's IoT assets or other pieces of technology um, that can start to automate systems in that building so that they can become optimized, whether it's for safety, whether it's dealing with COVID protocols, whether it's dealing with ingress and egress patterns of how people can enter and use a building, but ultimately it's, it's about productivity. The second area has to do with uh, a user experience. So I'm sure we've all hopefully have had the opportunity to go into buildings where it's easy to find where you're going. Um, the elevators work in a timely manner. The security is there. That makes you feel safe and comfortable um, in, in who you're working with and the areas that you're in. The ability for um, no breakdowns to happen, you know, within the equipment around you. The ability to go into a conference room where it's automatically set up for you. So these are these are smart attributes that are about things to help you with your productivity and, and comfort levels. And then there's the uh, third column, which would be in the sustainability category, that says that I'm running renewable energies um, if possible. I am. Um, getting 100% reclamation of my water. I have zero plastics. Um, there, there's just a litany of sustainability components. So by using data and having these buildings um, start to automate, you can imagine that companies that own buildings or campuses, they want to do this because A, it helps the sustainability, but more importantly, it's driving productivity and it makes it where people want to work. And it's just smart, right, of how these buildings work across there. Think of these buildings as just giant sets of networks. It's as if you're inside a smartphone now, right? You know, we use our smartphones and we, you know, marvel at all the things we could do in it. Well, imagine if your whole building can behave in ways to support and amplify what you do. So when you do these engagements, which is what your original question was, it really kind of depends on the facility. Right. So if you're building something um, for a tenant um, or an office building, it is around, say, productivity and um, the ability for you to run a business if you're a bank or um, another kind of company. But what if you're a factory? You know, those also qualify. So how do you create a, a factory that is, you know, thinking for itself and having certain levels of robotics, but also understanding how to optimize what humans can do across there. And that's even become even more of a challenge as we're looking at the complexities of supply chains right now. So supply chains are, are closely related to it. And then there's, say, another scenario. Um, we do a lot with sports arenas and this idea that you think of large populations coming in for specific times and events to have the best experience possible. 
and that could be the sports feature that they're they're they've come to see. It could be perhaps an entertainment value uh, venue that they they've seen. How do they locate where their seat is? How do they get the best food service? How do they know if their bathrooms are safe and clean? Um, how do they locate quickly um, others that they want to meet? How do they enter that building? Um, you know, some of these sports venues actually have train stations that are underneath running. And so how do you sync up your tickets to the time of your train? There's lots of things that you can do. And then there's the whole facilities management side for any of these places that the owners and the operators of these facilities, they want command and control centers so that they can optimize the experience and create a more valuable asset um, and experience across there. It's, it's a huge area. And if we think about you know, cities themselves um, and the importance of what's happening right now, we all talk about you know, pollution or we need more things that are sustainable and green, but we also want less congestion and traffic. We want to make sure that there's safety. Um, buildings themselves were the biggest thing that were impacted when COVID hit, right? Because we couldn't go back into the workplace. So how, how was that all going to you know, sort itself out through there? The energy signatures of buildings, and as I said before, or at least earlier, the creation of a building to then the operation of building, that's about 40% of your greenhouse gases that are that are coming out. Now, if you take transportation, whether it's transportation of what it was needed to either create the buildings or the transportation to use the buildings, that kicks up another 30% of, of the greenhouse gases. So your cities, if you can solve for this in an intelligent way, you are going to solve 70% of what we're all trying to do, getting towards you know, carbon net neutral zero. Other things are, are very, very difficult, but buildings and transportation are key. Smart buildings have this ability um, to have an immediate impact, and, and they always have throughout history. I could say you know, a smart you know, system a thousand years ago would have been putting fountains in Rome so that you had clean public water you know, in central places, or the first clock towers you know, that were put you know, back in medieval times so people knew what time of day it was. And they knew, you know, how to have longer work days or start to see education take place. So we go through various times, you know, in our history. And if you think about buildings in our own time, they're the laggards, right? We apply technology on and on through our devices, through our computers, through our cars, um, through our homes with nests and things like that. But buildings have been a laggard, but the buildings are where we spend something like 90% of our time. I think that's the last statistic I saw. I saw was that we spend 90% of our time in buildings, we spend um, 6% of our time in transportation and cars, and we spend 3% of our time outside, which is kind of depressing <laughs> if you think about it, right? So it is. It is. the fact that buildings are lagging in technology um, and the fact that we can make them smarter, um, which just benefits us all, it's about time. Now, speaking of laggards, you know, you mentioned smart spaces. Uh, I think first pillar was assets. You gave an example of IoT. Second was user experience. The third one, sustainability. How have you seen the attitudes from leadership and leadership and organizations change, specifically when it comes to sustainability? Yeah, I, so that's it's 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 a great question, and I still think it has to be resolved. Um, I think we've certainly have seen um, fits and starts of um, sustainability and and where it gets to the board level or, or, or leadership. Uh, like I said, I'm very fortunate that I worked for a company that understood this you know, back in 2008 um, is when we really started looking at it and started our journey. It took 10 years for us to achieve um, our carbon neutrality. We, we made a commitment in 2011 after we had defined the problem statement with the UN. So this is actually five, six years before the Paris agreements. 
that we start taking carbon out of our systems um, going across there. And so it was a 10-year journey for us. I think that with world events, um, I think part of it is political, uh, but also I think COVID also kind of brought to light what happens um, when a situation doesn't recognize borders or, or country's wealth as much, as opposed to what impacts everybody, you know, no matter how wealthy you know, you might be as, as, as an economy. Um, if you don't solve it for the world, um, it's never going to be solved and it's going, to, it's going to continue. So I think that lesson was understood along with the fact that when we really had to say, I can take technology and innovation and come up with a vaccine or come up with protocols and governance to start to control an emergency situation like this. Uh, people are really smart and the ability you know, to come up with that showed that you can do these things. I think at the same time, the um, imperatives that we've seen uh, from climate change in particular and the quality of life um, and the moves, large moves of populations has also alerted companies to say, you know, where should they be located? Where's that workforce going to be? What are the products that are going to be able to activate um, in a supply chain of, of value coming across there um, was a big motivation. I think in Europe um, in particular, when they, you know, formally announced that board um, compensation was going to be tied um, to uh, ESG um, metrics. So that's ESG environment, social and governance, which is our definition of sustainability. Then it really started to matter, right? Because now as a board member, you are having influencers that are saying companies must start behaving in certain ways. When you see the rebuilds of the economy right now, uh, you know, traditionally economies after um, a downturn will either build out in two ways. Either it'll be infrastructure, which we're hearing a lot about right now, or it'll be military that <laughs> says, okay, we're going to you know, <laughs> beef up our ability to, to have our way. And I think this time around um, with infrastructure, um, we're saying, guess what? Sustainability has to be there. We, we have to look at renewables. We, we have to understand um, you know, the advances of what's happening with mobility. We need to understand the implications of coastal you know, changes in water levels, because that's where most major cities are located. What, 94% of the population lives you know, within 100 miles of the coast. So what happens if water raises up two or three feet? It's, you know, we're all facing big questions. So I think companies are realizing that um, in order to stay relevant, in order to attract the workforces, in order to be part of the solution and not part of the problem, that mandate has now reached the board level. And uh, for sustainability, it's, it's really two ways to look at it. And sometimes we refer to it as scope one, two, and three, but it's two ways. One is... What do you do with your own operations? What are you doing for your own company um, in order to um, become more sustainable? And then the second major part is what do I do with my um, supply chain of who I get involved with, right? Whether I'm creating things through that supply chain or whether I'm delivering through that supply chain. That is now a requirement with sustainability. And when I refer to those three scopes, so that first scope is your operations. It's everything that you do um, within your buildings, with your people, and all that coming across there. Scope two is what is the energy and carbon output that you're, you're dealing with, right? So do I choose to use renewable energies? Do I um, have certain rules around transportation of how people come in? And those are scope twos. Scope threes are everything in your supply chain. It says all of your suppliers will meet certain standards so that you all kind of head into 
this carbon neutrality zone of decarbonization or climate control in other areas. And that's where it gets really complex. But businesses are making conscious decisions of who they work with and who they do not work with. Because now that compensation is tied to it, now that there's huge contracts out there for infrastructure rebuilds, um, now that the population of workers are saying, you know, I'll choose this product over this other product because I feel it's more sustainable. Uh, it really has hit a, you know, a crescendo right now, and hopefully we'll stick with it. Let's double click on scope three. I think it's called all other indirect emissions from activities. Mm-hmm. How, how does Infosys, first of all, probably a designer's dream, but how does Infosys help companies get a view on those additional you know, emissions or regulations requirements? Yeah. Part of it is through uh, certainly assessments and it's certainly through um, big data problem sets. But I think what's more interesting uh, about this question is if you think about the, the SDGs, so the 17 SDGs, um, they are you know the UN guidelines, right? Mm-hmm. And companies can choose which of those SDGs they want to do, right? So you know, some companies will form, um, you know, alliances to say we agree to these together for certain reasons, but it's still optional which ones you choose. And then you have this option of saying, and how much of this will I do? So what, what I mean by that is if I take the SDG on greenhouse emissions um, and, and carbon emissions, I can say, yeah, but my goal will be to reduce it by 20 or 30%. There's no law saying you must reduce it by 90%, right? So it's kind of optional what you're saying. So one of the challenges that companies have, we all have, is how do I select my metrics? And then how do I report out on those metrics in a recognizable form? And it's one of the first big challenges. So what emphasis often um, will work with companies and why there's, I think, a large trust is the fact that when we say that we're net carbon neutral, we have done that without purchasing credits. We've done this through technology. We've done this through choosing different kinds of renewable energy. We've done this through our building designs, as I've talked about. We've done this through community um, corporate social responsibility programs to boost up economies. And this allows us to get to our carbon net neutral component. So when companies are saying they need to look at that scope three, which is very, very complex, right? Because if you think about scope three as that supply chain, and they're saying, I need to remove carbon out of supply, out of my supply chain, how can you get enough information out of your supply chain that you can actually prove that you're doing it, right? Because just because they're in your supply chain doesn't mean you're going to have access to all their data. That's really up to an agreement that you would go forward with. And then how do you verify that? And truly for sustainability, it has to be third-party verified in order for it to pass the auditing across there. So what we have done is we've created um, a set of tools that are basically big data tools that would allow for the collection of that data, whether it's put in by hand, but hopefully it's more put in through IoT devices or automation, so that data can be aggregated and that you can get a true picture of things. And take down another break, uh, step down. Some data is very quantitative in nature, right? So environmental data, greenhouse gases, energy signatures, climate, those are tangible things. But sustainability, as I said before, is also social and governance. So when you're at a social level and you're talking about diversity or inclusivity or if you're looking at governance, those could be more qualitative in, 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 in manners. And then it becomes very subjective, right, of how that's being reported out across there. And so what we try to do is 
just like with the digital transformation program was years ago, until you can move those into centralized ERP uh, systems of record, they're not quantifiable. So we try to help companies take their digital agendas, also take the kinds of information that we can get out of them in that system and move it into centralized systems so that they can be auditable across there. That's the theory behind it. Um, that is the activity. Where this gets very complex, though, is if you think of um, what supply chains are in sustainability, it's about circularity. So circularity is basically saying, you know, this little waste in as a little waste out, right? You know, as we think about, you know, down that entire supply chain. And that goes everything from the energy to when you're thinking about designing a product. How do I have to think about reuse and recycling from the beginning? How do I think about transport? How do I think about reverse logistics? How do I know if the companies that I'm working for are compliant? And they're all going to fumble and stumble, and we do too. So how do they deal with re resilience across there? So the thing that we have come up with are lightweight ways of collecting data that can work on top of other systems that can be audited properly, um, and that could be used for valuations, but it also could be used for measurements. The other thing that we have done is um, we've assessed created assessments for large supply chains to at least say, this is the baseline. This is where your suppliers are, tier one, tier two, tier three, where they are in their journeys. Um, and then what can we do over a period of time to move them up the value chain or to take them out of the supply chain if, if it's not going to be a good partner for them. And then have the ability for not just that data collection, but to set like a group goal that says out of your supply chain, over a year or two years, we're going to take out 20 or 30% of the carbon across there. And we'll do that on a performance-based contract that basically says, we'll take the supply chain, we'll get you to this goal. Um, and if we don't do it um, to this level, then we don't get compensated in a proper way. And what starts to happen is, is that you start getting alignment of um, the bigger picture. And instead of just playing the game of I get credits um, or I, I'm offsetting my carbon in certain ways, you're actually physically taking carbon out of the system across there. Surprisingly, you can achieve this. Um, we've seen this now in three to six months if, if with the right kinds of um, opportunities come across there. You know, when I talk to companies, um, I mean, I see these goals that they say, you know, as an individual company, we're setting a goal for 2040 or 2050 to take out 50% of our carbon and whatever. That's very realistic for large companies like that do a lot of materials like a Dow or others, right? But when you're in an information or technology um, culture and everybody's into technology now, we were able to do this in 10 years, right? To take mm -hmm. our entire company and do this and our supply chain. I believe having started that in 2011 and achieving that two years ago, what we know now and the technologies that we have now, I believe you can achieve this in seven years. You easily shave three years off that cycle. If, if you have the, the will to do this um, and the, it's not even so much a large investment because these programs themselves are usually funded. There's a lot of mechanisms in the investment community right now to support this whole movement. It sounds like at the core of what you're speaking about is a shift in thinking. And I had a guest on the show two years ago and, you know, he spoke about circular thinking and his question, which he poses to his clients is, what if you start out with the statement, we are going to have no waste, there's going to be no waste. So no cradle to grave, all cradle to cradle. And if we start with that thinking, where can we go from here? 
I agree with that completely. And, you know, one of the keys, I'm sure many of um, your um, listeners or viewers have um, talk, have heard about is science-based targets, right? So these, these are targets that have scientific, you know, foundations in them. And the key to doing a science-based target of saying, I'm going to take out carbon, and it has to be scientifically proven, is you take an ambitious goal. And it's almost on the, just on the edge of impossible. Um, but you take this scientific, you take an ambitious goal, and it forces you to say, why are all the things that I can do? Do I need to really put in solar fields? Can I, you know, find other ways of energy? Can I really rethink um, of not using plastics at all? Can I perhaps take my um, leftovers from my supply chain and move it to somebody else's supply chain where they can use these products across here? And unless you strive for those ambitious goals, you're never going to achieve it. And you probably won't get perfect. You probably will um, you know, fall short in some areas, but you'll make much more progress than if you just set a low-hanging fruit target across there. So I agree with that with, uh, completely with, with circularity. Absolutely. And again, it sounds like a dream for a design thinker. It, it is. And I'll tell you what's you know, interesting, I think, about design is I think one of the things that, that we do, we know ultimately for things to really work, I keep on using the word science and maybe discuss my background, but it has to scientifically work, right? You, you, if, if the science isn't there, you can't capture and store carbon or you can't really create safe uh, air quality environments. It, you know, it just, it's just not something to say, well, I think I can do this. And I'm going to write some software. There has to be scientific proof, you know, that the technology works through there. But the majority of the world doesn't have access to those scientists, right? Or you know, to the level that you could say, I'm putting scientists on my staff to go do this. So I believe that um, companies like Emphasis are a great bridge of both real science and then what I call practical calculus, which says, how do I take you know all of those equations and all that hard science and turn that into usable formulas and frameworks, right? That can be deployed by large parts of the population, whether they're technologists, whether they're designers, whether they're business folks, whether they're data scientists. But if we can take those formulas and make them usable so that inventors um, can move fast and actually solve for this, you need both. And I think that's often a bridge of what we do. That's why, you know, when we label, when we talk about sustainability, uh, we call it practical sustainability. Things that you actually uh, you know, can do that can happen in a timely enough manner um, across there and have uh, immediate impact. So speaking of usable frameworks and practical sustainability, you have a book coming out in a couple of months. It's called Practical Sustainability, Circular Commerce, Smarter Spaces, and Happier Humans. What do you hope to accomplish with the book? First of all, thank you for the plug. <laughs> it's always appreciated. Um, but yeah, so what, what the, um, the goal of the book um, is, is that we actually have um, this I idea that says, how do we share frameworks and how do we create the narratives um, around what we're talking about here? So often the ability to go ahead and, and, and execute um, on what we're talking about uh, for sustainability or large problem sets um, can be very daunting and complex. So the idea of the book was to say, look, there are things that we have from experience and we've talked to, I'd say, at least 30 renowned external folks. Um, this isn't an emphasis book, actually. It's a, it's a book that myself and uh, Jeff Cavanaugh um, co-wrote and co-designed, was the idea to say, we believe that we can make a difference um, by sharing knowledge and that there were frameworks that we have seen 
um, both from our business situations and from uh, science institutions that we've worked with. And then having ourselves work for a company that achieved these goals that said, let's share this knowledge as much as we can. But it couldn't be a deep research book, technically, because that would take years and years to do to do it right. And we said, what can we do as designers, as consultants, as technologists that says, you know what, I can help you figure out how to take out that carbon um, with realistic steps that you can go through. So the goal of the book was to create these narratives. There are specific areas, you know, sustainability is large. That title itself, it's not maybe the best title in the world because it has so many words in it. We said three or four things that we can impact was circular commerce, is something that every company, every country, and every government has to understand. So let's address that. Let's address spaces, because as I said before, everybody uses spaces, and that would have a huge impact for everybody. And of course, how do we make sure that humans are in the equation and that they're benefiting from it? And so we kept it to that scope. And we've put in um, close to 60 frameworks that are usable right now that you could take and you could run an exercise and you could say, this is how I could think about starting a program, or this is how a carbon economy would work, um, or this is how, if I were to invest in a smart space, what would it take to measure my space? What would it take to actually retrofit or build a new space? And when could I see my ROI on this? And then where are the steps across there? And I'm hoping that it will be by several levels. One is the fact that um, if you're a practitioner um, that is fortunate enough to be able to deliver these kinds of services, it's an honor actually, it would give you frameworks that you could then build upon yourself. Secondly, if you are, say, a city manager or a mayor and you're saying, I have to make decisions around energy policies or understand what the infrastructure bills are about, this will help you at least hopefully make some decisions and understand what you're getting into across there. And then hopefully the most important thing that I hope happens out of this is that we've had several large um, academic institutions um, contribute and they have high interest in this. And they're talking about creating courseware based off of these components so that this next generation of students uh, kind of going back to why aren't there enough designers in there? So how do we start training and building that, you know, next set of workforce around sustainability? And I believe that these frameworks will allow uh, these institutions to create courses eventually, you know, that will take off and hopefully build this next generation of thinkers for us. Well, I look forward to reading it when it comes out. So I'm going to get to the crux of our conversation. You've mentioned a few times this passion for design throughout your career. Now you're engaging in sustainability. Why sustainability? What drew you to that? Why is that important to you? Well, I think first off, um, I think most of us are very drawn to sustainability, right? I, I think there's very few people you know, on the planet that would say that sustainability is not an attractive idea or a concept or something that you want to be on the right side of the ledger on. I'll tell you what actually um, drew me into uh, its current role. It was given to me. So <laughs> I was working on my smart spaces practice, other practice, and I get this call saying, hey, um, we need you to um, take over the sustainability because I, I have a pension for building things. I, I build businesses and build units and they're saying, you know, this is something um, that we think you could do very well. And I was thinking, this is really excellent, right? Because it's something that um, I feel fortunate enough to say 
I'm working on things that I can actually maybe explain to somebody now, right? In, in, in our field in technology, often we're working on these systems that you can't tell any, you really can't explain to your relatives or your friends, what is it that you do in a living other than your, your technology? And then you can actually tell people, well, I'm reducing greenhouse gases, or I'm taking plastics out of the ocean, um, or I am, you know, using renewable energies. Those are the easy answers. The more complex answers are actually, what are you doing with diversity and social you know, equity, or how are you dealing with, you know, governance on boards um, coming across there? So these become very complex sets of problems. This kind of goes back to design. So we do, or I do, um, and we put this forward, is this idea of applied systems design. How do you take complex systems and start to have them organized and behave in certain patterns? How do you break a problem down? It's both physical, digital, social, environmental, all of these governance wise and how can you start to align these so that you can achieve certain goals so sustainability is a um, not just such a relevant important thing to to be working on but it's an extremely interesting complex set of problems to to solve for and unlike other waves of technology that i've been fortunate to have been involved in usually as technology evolves and becomes more advanced you will find um a simplification pattern, right? We, we try to get velocity. We try to make low code, no code. Um, we make our interfaces easier to use, right, for adoption. What happens with sustainability is that every time you solve one piece of this, it's like throwing a pebble in the pond and all these other ripples start to happen. <laughs> You're saying, okay, I've just you know, moved this from here to here and that caused 10 more big things I need to solve through there. And every time you do that, it, it happens again. And what I often, um, when I relate to um, other individuals, you know, my peers in the field here, we, we talk about a couple of events that we see that are very common. Everybody agrees that um, sustainability um, is, is, is huge. We also have recognized that it's not like it's the next technology wave. It's not like, okay, well, here's cloud coming or here's mobility coming and there's gonna be a whole bunch of new players and new technologies. Sustainability is more about this is the age of sustainability, where everything about our lives and business are there. So it goes beyond traditional ways that technology companies think about things and every kind of company thinks about it. The other thing that's been really amazing is that almost every company is placing um, some pretty serious resources behind their sustainability. And usually at the senior management level, um, at the CEO level, CEO level, uh, chief sustainability officer level, chief procurement level, those individuals that I have met in all these organizations are amazing individuals. They are not just amazing because of the knowledge they have, but that each company seems to be putting somebody in place who is also highly, highly competent and successful in creating organizational change or has built major, major parts of businesses. So unlike past times where maybe a technology company might have to educate or um, help you know, guide a company to say, how do I make good technology decisions or what will this technology do for me and where's the business value? We are meeting sets of individuals who get this and who not only get why companies do this, but have been empowered to make companies do this. And that has been, you know, a remarkable set of individuals. It's like almost every first discussion you have, what you might start off thinking, this is a discussion, are we going to do business together? Automatically turns into a 360 degree relationship where we're just explaining what common goals are, are companies good fits for each other, do we have shared values? Those become the important discussions across there. 
and that's been fascinating. Well, it sounds like it's going to be a lifelong endeavor. Um, I'm not the first one to say this. Um, I'm going to say, at least for myself, for the next 15 years, it will be the busiest and most interesting 15 years. And I would say that there's a lot of work, you know, that's going to um, take place. And I'd say at least once a month, I hear of a project or a concept that I never would have dreamed of before. <laughs> and saying, we're going to do what? And it's um, just fascinating to try to solve those problems and then realize that they have a real possibility of actually, you know, taking place. And, and it's, it's, it's really, like I said, an amazing position and opportunity. What people need to realize is that these roles don't just reside with me, right? Where we're, I'm, you know, chief sustainability officer in a company. Everybody in the company has this ability, right, to, to be that impactful player. It goes back to the Fred Rogers thing. Do what you can at the level that you can, and there's no stopping you, right? Um, and everybody every day can do something um, that moves it in a direction, whether it's in their personal life or whether it's in their business life. Um, there are no rules that are telling you that you shouldn't be doing something in this direction. I, I totally agree with that. Now, it sounds like you spent quite a bit of time in introspection. You've had a quite a um, scenic journey on your career. What are a couple of the most valuable lessons you've learned about yourself on your journey? Yeah, so I would say um, I'll probably keep these more as, as maybe just general rules to live by or <laughs> painful lessons learned. Um, so um, often when I when I talk to people, things that I've learned. So I think one of the most valuable skills that um, a leader or a manager can have, and a leader should be at all levels, is the ability to make decisions. And this is not an original concept or thought, but it's something I thoroughly believe in. So the very best thing that you can do is make the right decision. The second best thing you can do is make the wrong decision. And the third thing that you can do is not make a decision at all. That's worse than making the wrong decision. And so often I think about that um, when we go through there. Um, I also constantly think about how, how to reinvent yourself every three years, whether that means you have to move to another company or just reinventing yourself within that company. Um, I know that we have a tendency to say, well, what's my career path? And, you know, we work to certain KPIs and goals across there, but I've never in my career ever worried about what my next role was going to be. Um, I always have been able to create my roles and I found other individuals can do that too. Um, you can make yourself be very valuable um, to a group of people or to companies um, and also align it to things that you want to be doing um, or things that you think are important through there. Um, so I think that's really important. I think it's also important not to freeze in time. So if you get very successful at something, you need to always look for a new challenge. Um, that's part of that reinvention part. Um, often we're victims of our own success. We tend to do things very well, we get continued work in that same direction because we're known for doing those things well, and then you end up, that's what you end up doing. Um, so how do you not freeze in time, which means you should step aside sometimes and let others um, you know, take over the lead? Even if you might think you might know how to do it better, um, that's never really the case. Um, if we think about it, um, you know, when we're most productive, I know I kind of hit my stride somewhere between the ages of 27 and 35. And that was many years ago where I could say I was having an impact and getting enough control that I felt I could take credit or work with teams to do so. And I think sometimes we forget as we have longer careers now in society that there's a whole generation of, of individuals that are coming out that um, have to be given leadership roles. And they you don't have to wait till you're 45 or 50 to say, I, I can lead a group or a division. So it's important not to freeze in time. 
Um, and it's important to, I'd say, manage up and manage down. Make sure the people that are working for you have the incredible opportunities that you've had. And then how do you manage upwards, you know, to constantly, you know, push management up above you because we're all in line somewhere um, to continue to change um, as needs to go across there. Another lesson is just because you're capable of doing something doesn't mean you should always do it. <laughs> right. <laughs> so <laughs> there's there's lessons there that I won't go into. Um, sometimes, you know, we're a company that feels we can build everything and anything, and I think we can, but it doesn't always make the sense to do so. Um, so I think that's important to understand ecosystems. I think also um, nothing is ever perfect. It never will be perfect. Often when I'm asking groups to solve in hackathons, uh, I do a lot of teaching with uh, students and grad students. We'll give them a problem set to solve in three or four days. That'll be very complex. And I'll say, the first thing is, is, Make sure your technology actually works, which is kind of against what you think designers would say. But if the technology is not working, then everything else won't work because you can't trust the data or anything that's happening across there. The second one is that realize that once you start solving for a problem set, you're never going to have enough resources or time that you thought you were going to have. So you're going to have to think your way through that. And if you do it, you're probably going to end up with a better design anyway, right? Because you're forced to change things. And then the third is to make sure that your ideas are big enough and bold enough that they're going to survive, you know, all the challenges along the way. And that's what's going to keep it going across there. So understand that nothing is ever perfect. And those are the realities of life. I think you'll do pretty well in most things that you try to do. Um, just one more. So diversity and inclusion. I know those are hot words right now. Um, because of um, sustainability and what we're looking at from the ESG perspective. But I made a conscious decision after working for some of the world's largest corporations um, to join a company that wasn't Western-based or Western European-based. And I intentionally joined a company that had a very different culture um, because I felt that it was a time for me to um, look at the world differently. And I would recommend that to everybody that you should constantly be looking to challenge yourself and um, see through other people's eyes of what's going on through there and be very open to it. And I think you'll grow better for it. So those would be the lessons that I've learned. Corey, all great lessons. Make sure your ideas are big enough, bold enough, and challenge yourself. I wish you great success with the book, and I look forward to catching up with you again soon. Well, thank you, Raj. I really appreciate the opportunity to have this conversation. Thank you. Thank you for listening. If you like our show, please give us a rating and review on iTunes. And you can show your support by sharing our show with a friend or reach out to us on social media where you'll find us under our Nexus PMG handle. If there's a subject or topic you'd like to hear about, send me an email, btu at nexuspmg.com or contact me via our website, nexuspmg.com. And while you're there, you can sign up for our monthly newsletter where we share what we're reading and thinking about in the clean tech, green tech sectors. Bigger Than Us is a Nexus PMG production.